Amen. Thank you, music team, for so beautifully leading us week in and week out. Well, I want to invite you to join me back in John's gospel account. This morning we'll look to chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Last week we talked about pictures. We actually talked a lot about pictures, and we saw there last week the picture of this, just the joy of Jesus. But no one picture captures anyone's full personality. They just don't. It's why um, I, I'm a personal fan of, of sort of the bifold picture frame, you know, the two frames that you can have two images side by side that capture different parts of person's personality, maybe a, a, a playful side, a, a, a posed side, different images, and those two together gives a better picture of the whole person. Well, here, in the beginning of John's gospel, we have a bifold picture frame, if you will. Last week, we saw the image of Jesus and his just abundant joy manifested as he turned the water into wine. It's his gift to the people there at the party. Today we see a different gift manifested with a different picture. It's a picture today of zeal, a picture of strength and power. We need these two complementary pictures side by side to tell us who is the Savior. We see them in the text today. As we prepare to go there, let me pray for us, asking that the Lord would show us our Savior. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for the wisdom of giving us your word. And we as we approach your word this morning, we ask that you would give us the gift of your spirit, that your spirit might give us the gift of sight, that we might see Jesus more fully, more passionately. We might believe and have life in his name. Would you do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume you. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. What is most important to you? What is number one on your priority list? What is that thing that... That drives you. And how would I know? How would I know? Maybe more importantly, how would you know? Let's be honest. We are in a worship service. And when I ask you what is most important to you, there's just something that just wells up inside of us thinking that we have to answer Jesus. (laughs) Because that's the Sunday school answer. But to hear what I'm asking, I'm not asking what do you say is most important. I'm asking what drives your passion. Maybe that passion, maybe that zeal is how we will all know what is most important to us. Zeal is a word that is used in this text. Zeal uh, it, it, it means to have a deep concern or devotion, a, a, a passion for someone or something. We see a picture of zeal in this text, and it indicates what is most important to Jesus. If we are to be honest with ourselves when we consider that question, what is most important to us, we must answer it by way of that thing, that person, that priority. It arouses our our zeal. Consider it for ourselves. Let's consider this zeal that we see in Jesus. His his passion was raised in this text, but, but why? What is the object of his zeal? As we think about that, I want to first sort of set the scene if you will. The the, the text actually opens by setting the scene for us. The scene is the Passover. It's the first Passover of of Jesus' public ministry. There will be others that we will come to in our journey through John. But what was the Passover? The Passover was, was the high point of the Jewish calendar. It was the combination of July 4th, and Thanksgiving and Easter all wrapped into one. It was their Independence Day. It was their their celebration. It was their redemption celebration. And so the people came from all over Israel, all over the region, and they came to Jerusalem. They came there to celebrate the Exodus. That that time and in Old Testament history when God redeemed his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. That night, in fact, when they would sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and, and rub it on the, the top of the doorpost so that the destroyer would pass over them. You see, the people that night offered a lamb as a substitute 
the lamb bore the wrath of God instead of them. And it was their, their redemption celebration that came to Jerusalem to remember. They came to Jerusalem in hopes that the Lord would once again redeem them from the oppression that they felt from Rome. And so there was this, this excitement, this celebration, maybe even an anticipation as they came considering, considering the Lamb. With that setting, with that scene, Jesus walks into the temple. We saw the picture painted here. A picture of zeal on full display as, as Jesus entered into the temple complex. Why the zeal? What aroused his zeal? It's important to note, I'm going to differentiate between the object of his zeal and the enemies of his zeal. And I'm going to do that for this reason. We need to see that this text is not primarily what Jesus is against. This text is primarily what Jesus is for. Last week we saw that Jesus was for joy. This week we see, first and foremost, that Jesus is for the glory of God. The glory of God is what aroused Jesus' passion more than anything else. Did you hear it? When he told the money changers and the, and the livestock sellers to get out, what did he say? This is my father's house. This is my father's house. Do not do that here in my father's house. His passion for the glory of God, his father, it drove everything. It drove his whole life. It fueled his zeal. As we've started this time in John, I find myself continuing to go back to John 17. John 17 is the high priestly prayer. It was prayed the night of Jesus' death. And when you go back and read John 17 and you read his prayer that night, you see themes that repeat themselves over and over and over again throughout John. It, that, that prayer on his final night, it sort of encapsulated everything that he lived for, everything that he said interesting end of life has a way of clarifying things for us doesn't it we know it when we've been around loved ones who have been at end of life we know it when we have been to funerals when we go to a funeral what are we concerned about we're concerned about those things that are most important family oh god we don't worry at a funeral over those trivial matters of life. And so many at a funeral and end of life, they, they consider those, those priorities and there's this sense of regret. If only I would have spent more time focusing on that. But on Jesus' last night, as Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer, there's no regret. Because there was a beautiful consistency of life. 
that which he was passionate about at the end was that which he was passionate about at the beginning. And he lived his entire life with that burning zeal. And he captures it in verse 4 of chapter 17 when he says in his prayer, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That glory, that glory for his Father's name, it was his guiding principle in all of life. It stirred his passion. Jesus had a passion for the glory of God that drove his focus then on God-exalting worship. Because he knew. He knew the glory of God. He had witnessed and experienced the glory of God. He's God the Son, and he knew then that that God-exalting worship is the most appropriate thing for us to do but also the act in which we are the most blessed. So Jesus' passion for the glory of God saw an outlet in this passion for the people of God to be blessed by unhindered worship. That's what's going on here in John chapter 2. Remember, it's what Jesus is for more than what he is against. It's helpful for us to see in, in terms of his uh, actions there that day. You see, his actions, they weren't really a rejection of business. No, the people who were there, uh, they were providing a much-needed service. Pilgrims came to, to celebrate the Passover feast from, from all over the land, and it was, it was impractical for them to bring their livestock with them. They needed to to buy close to the temple. The people there were providing that service. The issue was not that they were doing business. It was where they were doing business. They chose the wrong place. There was a time when they used to do that over across the Kidron Valley, but, but over time, they moved closer. In doing so, they, they caused a distraction, a distraction from the centrality worship but maybe distraction doesn't quite capture what is going on they are hindering impeding worship these money changers sort of the the foreign exchange desk if you will the the, the livestock uh, merchants they set up shop in the in the court of the Gentiles it's the outer ring of the of the temple it's it's part of the temple complex and the people who came for the purpose of worship had to make their way through all that was going on. We have in our minds this scene with, with animals, and, and maybe we might think about a petting zoo. You know, petting zoos are, are sweet. There's a few animals out in the yard, and you go out, and you, you kind of look at them, you pet them, but they're not that obtrusive. This is not a petting zoo. This is a stockyard. Have you seen the sights of a stockyard? Have you smelled the smells? Have you heard the sounds? And this is a stockyard big enough for all the people from all the nation who are coming to the temple. The people could not get through the oxen and the, and the sheep to, to get to the temple. It, it was not only 
distracting them from their purpose. They couldn't get through it. And when they finally got through to the temple, all they could hear in the background, all they could smell was this gathering of animals and and merchants. And Jesus says, no, that's not the priority of this place. Jesus was zealous. He was zealous for God-exalting worship that was a blessing to the people. Rooted in a desire for the glory of God. That was primary. The glory of God and, and this worship, they were the objects of his zeal. But if those were the objects, his zeal was, was directed against two very specific enemies. Like on one hand, uh, again, we... we we, we know the people came to offer sacrifices, and so we can be tempted to say, what's all the fuss? Aren't they just trying to help? Well, the few verses we read at the end, verses 23 through 25, they, they, they help out a little bit. They add a little clarity. Because in those verses we read that, that Jesus knew what was in their hearts. How does that feel? But Jesus not only knew what was in their hearts, but Jesus knows what is in our heart. How does that feel to be known in that way? It's a fine line between being known and being exposed. Jesus knew where that line was, and he seems to draw it for the merchants there. You see, by their location... They made a statement of priority. Yes, at one time, the merchants sold across the Kidron Valley, but they got up close and personal. Why? Because their priority was not in preserving worship. Their priority was in personal gain. They came because they knew if they sat up there in the court of the Gentiles, everybody had to pass by. They had freedom of pricing. They had freedom of location. They prioritized their personal gain over the preservation of God-exalting worship. Jesus saw their actions, knew their hearts, and he had no tolerance for them. Again, profit is not bad. Profit over worship was the problem. And so Jesus threw the profiteers out. They were one enemy. There's a second second enemy here is the religious leaders. I'll be clear. Verse 18, we, we read, so the Jews. I'm, I'm understanding the Jews there in verse 18 to be referring to the religious leaders, the, you know, the temple officials, the, the representatives of the Sanhedrin, the ones who were keeping an orderly account of all that was going on in worship. Back to verses 23 through 25, the uh, the profiteers, they, they were exposed by Jesus' response to them. But the difference here with the religious leaders is, is they exposed themselves by virtue of their response to Jesus. Their heart was on display when they responded back to him with the wrong response. And we'll talk about that, but let's understand why it was the wrong response. Listen, it's very easy for us to throw rocks at the religious leaders in Scripture. They kind of kind of take on the, you know, the, the, the evil mask. But maybe we need to understand how much we are alike. 
Do you think for a second that the religious leaders were against worship? No. Religious leaders were not against worship. They wanted people to come. They wanted people to offer sacrifices. They were there to facilitate it. They weren't against worship, but the problem was they had grown numb to the distraction that was presented there. The sellers had probably been there as long as they could remember, and over time, they began to just accept that that tradition was the way it was supposed to be. They grew numb by their own tradition. How about us? What are the traditions that we have that seem to change our worship and change our focus in worship away from the glory of God? We need to connect to the religious leaders here. This is why. When Jesus came and he threw out the profiteers, it was an opportunity for those religious leaders to then reflect on what they had come to accept as the norm. It was an opportunity for them to reconsider worship, to reconsider God-exalting worship, to make it a priority, and to confess the ways in which they had watered it down. Jesus was there offering them an opportunity for repentance. But instead, they bowed up. Jesus, who do you think you are? What are you... What are you doing? Casting these people out. Show us a sign, a sign of your authority. Flash a badge. They had an opportunity to reflect, to consider, to confess, but instead they rebuffed this act. They weren't focused on purifying worship. They wanted to know who was this imposter. They demanded a sign even though they had just received one. Jesus' act of cleansing the temple was a sign of his authority. They rebuffed it. What about us? How are we to respond to this picture? How are we to respond when we are confronted by the zeal of Jesus? Let's consider that question of response in the context of the picture that's presented There are certainly truths that we need to grasp here about worship, and we'll get to them. But let's not forget that this is a picture of a person. Last week we saw a picture of Jesus. It was a picture that I asked you to imagine. As the the servants brought that, that wine to the master of the ceremony, and they tasted it, it was the best asked you to imagine the smile on Jesus' face. If we were to imagine the smile on Jesus' face last week, there's a different picture we need to imagine today. That is Jesus, our Savior who is for joy. It's here in this scene with a whip made out of cords running, chasing the animals and their sellers out of the complex, overturning tables, emptying out the change purses. That is the picture of zeal that we must imagine today. That is the picture of Jesus that complements the picture that we saw last week. Now, 
I don't know about you, but when I try and imagine that, I can't help but imposing on Jesus the way I would react in that type of anger. And it looks a lot like pitching a fit, just to be honest with you. Is running around uncontrolled fury, chasing people out, but that wouldn't be Jesus. This, I believe, is the picture of Jesus. Forceful, strong, authoritative, without losing his cool. Again, it completes the picture we saw last week. It's a picture of extravagance. We saw his extravagant provision last week of the wine, but we see here a picture of his extravagant protection for the glory of God and for the people of God. As he cleanses the temple, as he cleanses worship. So how do we respond to that picture? Well, I think first we need to consider the primacy of worship. Look, in the past, as I've thought about this text, i just got to confess, and maybe you've done the same, I, I thought about application for this in terms of sort of the location for the, the, the church bake sale, all right? You know, you know what I'm talking about. You do a bake sale to fund the, the youth trip. And so if we're going to listen to this text, then I guess what this text is telling us is the tables for the bake sale need to be outside, not in the lobby. That's where I've been tempted to think about this application in the past. But see, here's the problem. That misses the heart. That reduces it to something that we can control with externals. But Jesus didn't tweak the details in his text. He kicked them out. He threw the table on its side. This text is getting at the heart of worship, our heart for worship. And so I ask you, where does your heart place worship on the priority list? When I asked you about what's most important, where does worship fit? Are you zealous for worship? How? How does it show up? Look, every person in this room falls short of the glory of God. Every person in this room, yours truly included and maybe at the head of the pack, fall short in this understanding of making worship a priority. And so understanding that we've got a level playing field, rather than bowing up like the religious leaders did, let's consider this an opportunity to, to repent. Let's consider this an opportunity to, to reflect and, and renew or maybe find a new focus on worship. Let me ask you, as we think about what we do here on Sunday mornings, how do you prepare yourself? All of life is, is worship, but in a special way, the Lord our God has set apart corporate gather worship of the people of God to be different, to be holy. So is this gathering, is it one among many, or is it the climax of the week that you build to? Is it the tone setter for the week to come that you, that you build off of? And what does that look like? We gather for worship planning as a worship team on Wednesdays each week. But we're not beginning to think about worship on Wednesdays. It starts on Mondays as we enter into the text and begin to study it and begin to meditate on it reflect on it. And then we come together on Wednesday to, to talk and to process 
and community, what that, what that text means and what it looks like for us to worship in light of it. And so we build a worship service around it in community. I hope you hear that we worship. I hope you heard, for example, Jesus strong and kind, that, that dual picture of Jesus. A mighty fortress is our God, that picture of Jesus' strength. I hope you'll hear it in the hymn of response, Jesus faithful. We don't stop on Wednesday because we have this, this order of worship that, that, we, that we marinate in over the course of the week. What would it look like for you to spend time throughout the week meditating on the passage? Even singing the psalms for worship. We put them out on Fridays. What would it look like for you to prepare your body for worship? To get the rest that you need on Saturday night so that you come in energized to worship the Lord your God who's worthy. What would it look like practically to prioritize worship as the climax of the week? Maybe. That is an image of what it means to, prior, to zealously prioritize worship in our lives. Do you understand? We're talking about details here. The details are merely an outworking of our heart. Our heart set on the glory of God. Friends, this picture of Jesus, the picture of the God-man, zealously guarding and protecting worship, shepherding us, because as he does that in worship, he's caring for us. That's the picture we have of Jesus. But secondly, how do we respond to this picture of the person of Jesus? We need to see something in him that I don't put forward as sort of the center of the circle meaning of this text, but it is it is an important message that you and I need to hear. Jesus is primarily Savior, but he is also a model. He's a model of masculinity. That the men and the women here need to hear. Think about that model. We have influencers in our day and time, and for the life of me, I can't help but think that the influencer movement is just a picture of meaningless because it's it's people trying to influence you to wear a certain set of shoes or go to a certain restaurant and if they post a picture of themselves doing it maybe you'll want to do it too is that what we're saying about jesus that he's just another influencer in how to be a man no no he's a redeemer he is savior he redeems our false understanding of masculinity and he gives us a model of how to live into it. Listen, I understand that when I put forward Jesus, particularly in this context, driving the people out of the Temple Mount as a model of masculinity, there's a temptation for some of us who have experienced uh, abuses of strength, abuses of power, to, to hear that through a lens of abuse and to say, I want no part of that. Understand, understand Jesus has come to redeem our understanding of masculinity. The, the false abuses, that, that proves the point. We need a better picture. Fallen man either goes passive or fallen man uses strength abusively. And so the fallen world then says, don't be strong. Don't buy it. 
seeing Jesus, a model of redeemed masculinity that lives zealously for others, that protects others, and here in this passage does so by protecting worship, protecting the simplicity and purity of worship against distraction, and in doing so, he is extravagantly guarding us. (laughs) Find strength in his strength. Let his passions shape yours. Shape ours. The religious leaders, they got a front row invitation to see and respond to all of this, and they missed it. Either because they were blinded to their struggles or they were too stubborn to acknowledge them. Let it not be so of us. Let us acknowledge our need. Let us see in this picture of zeal a call to repent and let us do the opposite of the religious leaders. To do so, we've got to be honest with our struggles. And that takes us back to verses 23 through 25 there at the end. Jesus knows hearts. We may fool ourselves, but we don't fool Jesus. The text tells us here that he didn't entrust himself to them. It basically means that he didn't fall for their flattery and he didn't despair over their rejection. He knew what was in man, which meant he continued on his mission. The religious leaders, they they asked for a sign. That was, in fact, their sin, (laughs) that they demanded a sign from Jesus, but it was a sign that he graciously offered and in the fullness of time he fulfilled he completed his zeal when he went to the cross the sign that he offered tear this temple down and I will raise it up in three days they couldn't understand that and we again need to not throw rocks at the religious leaders we can't understand it either they heard that and said 46 years it took to build this place look around here we set a record in building this place and it took 10 months Towards the end, I was terrified a tornado was going to come through. And it almost did. We understand their hesitation, but Jesus wasn't talking about the structure. Jesus was talking about the purpose of the structure. The structure of the temple existed as a place of sacrifice. The oxen, the sheep... The pigeons, they were all offered up there as a substitute to take on the wrath of God in the people's place. But here's the thing. Those sacrifices, they had to be made every year. Year in, year out. Because they couldn't accomplish the thing for which they were offered. They were only signs pointing to the true Lamb of God, Jesus And when Jesus fulfilled the sign that he had offered to them, he came and offered himself up as the ultimate sacrifice, the one whom the oxen and the lambs and the pigeons and even the temple pointed to. He, he was destroyed once, once and for all. And on the third day, he was raised up. Jesus replaced the temple by fulfilling its very purpose friends we're given over we're given over to to lesser passions our priorities fall woefully short and jesus knew it all 
Jesus' wine came to redeem us from ourselves. So friends, these images that we heard last week, that we see today, images of life and strength and zeal and sacrifice and love, they paint a picture of a Savior who is worthy. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our life's devotion. And that devotion and that worship, it begins with simple, profound belief. A belief that we are invited into throughout this gospel as John repeatedly gives us images of the Savior who came to live and die for us. Friends, let us be shaped by his zeal and let us find life in his name. Father, you are abundant. You are mighty. You are gracious. And we see your fullness in the person of Jesus. I pray that our hearts would be shaped by the images that you've given us of him. That we might not only or not merely model our lives after him, but we might be redeemed by him. A redemption that is ours through faith alone. What a gift. We praise you for it and ask that you would plant it deep in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.